This podcast was recorded on November 3rd, 2020. Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. I actually believe that there is hope and that we have the, if we have the will, we have the ability to change and turn things around. And I think that one of the starting points is capturing data that allows us to actually identify what are these factors that are driving some of these outcomes. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Today, we're talking about the vast racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 hospitalization and mortality. We'll be examining the topic through the lens of one highly segregated majority-minority city, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm speaking with Leonard Aghetti, Division Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine and Director of the Center for Advancing Population Science at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Aghetti and his colleagues analyzed data for more than 31,000 adults tested for COVID-19 between March and July of 2020 in Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. Similar to national data, they found Blacks and Hispanics were 3.7 and 3.1 times, respectively, more likely to test positive for COVID-19 than non-Hispanic whites. What do these findings mean for hospitals, for communities, for policymakers? What do they tell us about the challenges that lie ahead as the COVID-19 pandemic continues? Dr. Aghetti, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for uh, having me here. I'm really excited to be here and uh, happy to share the results of our study. That's great. Now, there's a long history of systemic racism in Milwaukee, as there is elsewhere, of course, in the country. How do you see that manifest today? So I think we, um, you know, if you're familiar with the, uh, with the uh, recent uh, riots that happened in Kenosha, uh, where uh, that was tied to the Black Lives uh, Movement, uh, that is, uh, gives you some perspective about uh, the challenges that are tied to the uh, significant segregation uh, that uh, occurs in Milwaukee. So Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in, uh, in the country, and uh, a lot of that segregation is tied to uh, policies of housing uh, 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 that happened uh, in the uh, in the um, in the thirties and forties, all the way into the seventies, where a lot of redlining was done, uh, and communities were actually uh, uh, segregated by race, and so that has actually created a uh, a situation that really uh, has uh, made it difficult uh, for uh, communities of color to be able to. Uh, engage and uh, have uh, optimal opportunities as it relates to housing, but also other social determinants of health. So, right. When we think about housing segregation, along with housing come so many other things, because where you live affects where you work. It affects where you go to school. uh, It affects the recreational opportunities, the food opportunities. I assume all of those have patterns that are racialized in Milwaukee and the region. Yeah, so I think uh, because of how uh, some of those uh, residential segregation in uh, Milwaukee, so the three counties that have the largest proportion of uh, uh, minority populations, so African-Americans and uh, Latinx populations are Milwaukee, Kenosha, and uh, Racine. And as a result, and then some parts of, uh, so as a result, many of those communities have uh, challenges that are tied to uh, a lot of the social uh, risk factors that we talk about including housing, food insecurity, transportation challenges, poverty, unemployment, underemployment, and most of the other social challenges that we actually face. Okay, so let's get into some of the findings from your paper. It begins noting that the test positivity rate 
was, as I noted it at the uh, outset, 3.7 and 3.1 times respectively higher for Blacks and Hispanics than non-Hispanic whites. So let's start just with the testing side of this. What do those data tell us about the rates of the burden of the disease within the population and the availability of testing? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's important to note is that this population we're actually addressing are individuals who have some level of insurance. And so the findings that we have are reflective of those who have access to healthcare already. Uh, so it is not truly representative of individuals who may not have access to healthcare. But what this tells us is that we looked at testing rates and the testing rates were not really different. However, the positivity rate was different. So it tells us that very consistent with what we're seeing in other parts of the country, that minority groups are more likely to test positive for COVID. And that has a lot to do with some of the underlying uh, structures that uh, that we talk about in terms of structural factors that may put them at increased risk. So I know we read about this all the time, but I just always think it's important to focus in. The testing rates are about the same. So when you see a different positivity rate, it gives you more confidence that that's a real phenomenon than if the testing rates were really different for the different populations. Is that the way to think about it? Yes, that's that's accurate. So uh, I think the important thing is as a health system, uh, the health system does not make decisions about testing based on race. Literally everyone has access to testing. What we find is that for those who are tested, the positivity rate is higher in minority groups, which tells us that something about uh, some of the underlying factors that's driving that positivity rate. So you're correct. Now, in the Washington, D.C. area where I live, we actually have had significant differences in availability of testing by region. Um, and we have racial pattern, re uh, residential patterns like you described. So you feel pretty good in your region that even though there is housing segregation, that the availability of testing is not really different by race. I really can't say for, for certain because, you know, like I said, uh, we actually looked at an, an insured health system-based uh, data. So, but uh, in terms of historical information and what we know about COVID, very early in the phase of COVID, testing was, was challenging. And testing was challenging for all groups and eventually was even more challenging for low-income and minority groups. So uh, if you didn't have insurance, if you didn't have access to healthcare, there were differences. However, in the population that we studied, the testing rates were not different because people had access to testing. Okay, that's really helpful. That makes a whole lot of sense. So now we found much higher positivity rates. And then for those who test positive, both Blacks and Hispanics are twice as likely to be hospitalized as non-Hispanic whites. And Hispanics are twice as likely to die as non-Hispanic whites. Now, they're all positive. So something different is happening. What do we know about why the outcomes differ? Yeah, so I, I think um, a, a couple of things. Uh, so once we move from the group of individuals who were tested, who tested positive, and we start looking at uh, what happened to them when they got hospitalized, the data we have actually, we're able to control for, for sex, for age, for location, the pair mix, and then also smoking and comorbidities which are usually the factors that drive you know, your risk of being, of being positive, but also your risk of being hospitalized. And what we are finding is that once you control for those factors, race remains associated with these factors, suggesting that it is not just about the location, it's not about your gender, it's not about your, your pair mix, it's really something that's tied to race. Now, we know that race is a social construct. 
So it's not uh, it's not an issue about biology. It's more about the social environment that may put you at increased risk for poor outcomes. So this is an important uh, way that we look at the data. You try to control for factors and isolate what could be behind it. Let me ask about the progression of the disease. It seems like if people come in to test uh, earlier, they're more likely to have a good outcome. They come in later when they're sicker, they may be more likely to have a poor outcome. They've all had a positive test. Is there any difference in the time or point that people are showing up for the testing? Um, so we, we know from other, you know, obviously from, from, this, from this data, we're not able to identify the timing at which people came in. We're able to uh, identify people when they came into the hospital and uh, whether they were hospitalized or not. But we know from other information we had that there were challenges in people getting access to, to healthcare, and some of the individuals who actually had access had challenges in being uh, admitted, being able to get beds. Now, Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin were lucky at the early phase of the disease that we didn't have the surge that most other places had. So we didn't really have that. We actually had enough beds. Now, now right now, we're actually dealing with the surge. But prior to uh, when this data was collected, we didn't have that surge. So we actually had enough beds. And so they had a lot to do with just when people were able to come in, access to care, and what other factors were driving their ability to actually use uh, the healthcare system. Yeah, I was going to bring this up. I mean, here we are. You did this work just a few months ago. It's still quite recent. But your state is unfortunately really growing off the charts right now. I know that's not the topic of your paper because we already published it, but it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about what's going on right now. Yeah, so I think our greatest challenge as a city and also as a state is that, unfortunately, the COVID crisis has been politicized. And so it has become a political issue as opposed to a healthcare issue. And that has driven a lot of decisions that really would actually provide safety as we, uh, in terms of how, uh, what we do. We know very well that a couple of measures are really important in terms of limiting the spread of, of COVID-19. So one of them is use of face masks, appropriate face masks, and social distancing, and hand, hand washing. And because of the way this has become politicized, some of those factors are now driven, have actually not been implemented effectively. And so and I, I do believe that regardless of where you stand in the political spectrum, uh, we're talking about lives. And so when it comes to uh, if, there, if there's anything we can do to save lives, we need to do the best we can to do that. So as, as clinicians, as physicians, most of us are very acutely aware of the importance of some of these measures that we know work. However, at the society level, that has not been the case. And we've had a lot of pushbacks in terms of implementing some of these strategies that actually work. Okay, we're going to go to a quick break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. Climate change is affecting how we live. With wildfires raging and the number of natural disasters increasing, policy changes are being developed to address the effects of climate transformation. The upcoming December 2020 health affairs issue explores how health policy is reacting to our planet's new normal. Don't miss this critical issue. Subscribe to the journal by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. 
And welcome back. I'm speaking with Dr. Agetti about COVID-19 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, before the break, you mentioned the differences across race and ethnicity. You've controlled for other factors. Race is a social construct. So this is tied to other burdens that these populations are carrying. One of the things you comment about in the paper is that the social factors that can affect health often aren't available or not known to the clinician when they're treating the patient. They're not in the, uh, in the electronic uh, health record, for example. So tell us a little bit more about what you think is missing and maybe what we could do about that. Yeah, thank you for, uh, for that, because I think this is a key part of what we need to pay attention to as we begin to address some of these underlying issues that are tied to structural factors that impact healthcare. So social determinants, as we, we all know, are, are things that are not measured in the medical records. Now, a lot of electronic health systems are beginning, or health systems are beginning to actually capture that in the medical records, but it's not routinely captured. So what that means is that you actually have no information about this individual's lived environment, uh, some of the challenges they face in terms of housing, food, transportation, uh, employment, poverty, all of those things are not captured. And these are the factors that we know from other studies that have been done that actually drive uh, some of the issues tied to COVID-19. So I think it's going to be critical as we go forward, one, for health systems to begin to capture this data in a, in a meaningful way and to have that available for people to actually analyze so we can actually pinpoint what are some of these factors in the lived environment that are, or the built environment that actually drive some of these outcomes. So from the perspective of analyzing the data, it would be great to have these so that you can figure out what the sources of some of the differences are. I wonder, do you feel like in your system, in your community, you have resources that could help address some of these? If, if, uh, if a person presents and they're having difficulty with housing or food, is, is there something that the health system can do? Uh, Milwaukee actually happens to have a lot of resources that are tied to addressing some of these social issues. There are a lot of uh, nonprofits, philanthropic groups. We actually have social uh, support networks that are actually in place to address this. So I think the most critical factor right now is identifying those who are at risk and having a way to actually actually um, uh, triage them and then funnel them to services that are available. Uh, just based on my, because I do work in this area, based on my awareness, I think the resources are in the community. Uh, there are resources available to address some of these issues. It's just a, a, a figure, a, a figure out a way to to identify those at risk, uh, most at risk, and being able to funnel them to resources and ensuring that they actually get the resources that's needed. That's great. Uh, so, because my next question is sort of how to how to find our positive way out of here. I have to say, you know, we see report after report that confirms these terrible differences in outcomes, uh, particularly for blacks and Hispanics relative to whites, and it's demoralizing. And, and the question is, how do you take this kind of information and turn it into something positive so that we're not just lamenting the inequities that exist, but we're trying to find a path uh, to get us out of these? It sounds like you've given that some thought. Uh, you've already started to answer this question, but maybe there's a little more you could say. Yes. So I, I think we have to first recognize that there are structural problems. And that these structural problems are not just didn't happen overnight. These are things that have happened for years. And so I think that awareness and recognition is probably a starting point. I am very optimistic. I actually believe that it is not hopeless. Otherwise, I wouldn't do what I do. I actually believe that there is hope and that we have the, if we have the will, we have the ability to change and turn things around. And I think one of the starting points is capturing data that allows us to actually identify 
what are these factors that are driving some of these outcomes? We have studies right now in the um, Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin area where we're capturing data on social determinants of health. We have a study of about, about 3,000 individuals where we've actually surveyed them extensively on social determinants of health. So we know what some of these factors are. We know by zip code where these individuals live and where the challenges are. So I think once we can incorporate that into the healthcare system, uh, some of the records, then the next step is interventions that are really effective. We have funded grants right now from NIH to look at food insecurity, to look at issues around the elderly, social isolation, you know, helping people deal with uh, you know, some of the challenges they face and building these social determinants into healthcare. So we have those studies right now. We have studies looking at financial incentives to help offset the pressure individuals face when they have uh, when they deal with poverty. So I think the next phase of work right now is getting these studies, you know, uh, getting the results out there, and then beginning to do implementation science to actually test how do we deploy this at larger scale going forward. So I think in the next five years we're going to be in a better place in terms of addressing some of these issues. Well, I love the optimism. I want to add another layer to this, which is the local nature of your study. Um, we know that national data on COVID-19 and uh, is hard to come by, and there's a lot of variability around the country. And yet the existence of disparities is well known, and whether the difference is three to one or two to one or four to one, we know we need to do something about it. So I want to ask you about what it means to do something like this in a local area, whether the findings give you a different audience than the national numbers might give you, whether you find receptive Activity among policymakers at either the local or the state level who want to do something about this that they might not respond to a national study? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, it, it goes both ways. So at the, at the local level, people, you know, when you talk about the counties that we actually studied, the people who live in those counties, we have policy uh, makers who live in those counties, so they actually can relate to the issues at hand and they actually know the, the lay of the land. So I think it helps in terms of selling the message and trying to get people to, uh, to rally around and finding solutions. But then the limitation is when you actually talk about national policy. So I don't think anybody at this level is not aware that some of these social determinants of health, national issues. It, uh, if, if you go to any inner city, you go to any urban area, these are big issues. And so I think at the end of the day, this study provides perspective that is probably applicable to other Midwestern cities. So I can imagine if you look at Detroit, if you look at Chicago, if you look at many of these uh, big cities that are in the Midwest, their results are going to be very similar to what you're finding in uh, Milwaukee. So we are confident that these results not only can be used locally for policy making, but also allow us to actually uh, extrapolate to uh, other Midwestern cities and provide some insight. And is your thinking about other Midwestern cities because you think some of the roots of the problems are the same? Some of the historical policies are the same? Uh, absolutely. So I think, you know, the Midwest, so some of these uh, social issues that we're talking about is um, the residential segregation are very similar across most of the Midwestern uh, cities. The migration that happened uh, from the South into the Midwest is very, very similar across those locations. So we expect that uh, the disparities we're seeing are going to be very similar. It may just be some variation from, from, from city to city, but by and large, very similar across most of the uh, large and Midwestern cities. And is the health system, in addition to the work you described about identifying the social determinants, is there a commitment at the health system level to try to work with the resources that are in the community? 
So I, I, I mean, I can speak to you know the health systems in in Milwaukee because I'm actually actively involved in some of the decision making process in terms of how do we address these social issues, and I think there's a there's a very strong interest in addressing this. I think in my hook, I've been doing uh, disparities work for the past twenty years, and this is about the time I've actually seen a lot of engagement at the level of the health systems where people are actually really interested and asking questions about what can we do to actually help this, uh, solve this problem. So I think what we as researchers need to be able to do is to provide those individuals with objective, valid, uh, well-designed studies to give them results that they can actually use to address this issue. So I, I think, I, again, I'm very optimistic. I think we're at a point where a lot of groups are aligning right now to try to address this problem. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to find solutions as we go forward. Well, I love hearing your optimism. And I also, since we're a journal, love to hear that you think good data and good evidence is a, a source of, of uh, policy improvement and attention, because of course, that's what we work on every day. Uh, I want to thank you for the work you did that we were able to publish with you. And uh, of course, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a great education for me. And as I say, it's nice to finish this conversation feeling more optimistic than I felt when I began. Well, thank you so much. Really had a great time. And uh, we're looking forward to being able to have some additional studies that actually show interventions that are likely to be effective as we go forward. So again, thank you for, the, for your time. Terrific. A Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet. Brian Dobbs edits the show. Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk help dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vivalo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vivalo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.